Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Adam Dorsey, a psychologist in Silicon Valley, and I am the host of Super Psyched, a podcast dedicated to supercharging your life. Each episode contains fun, high-quality interviews with experts looking at psychology from all angles. Super Psyched is your tool to get more of what you want in your life and less of what you don't. With the Tokyo Olympics on people's minds, I thought it would be a good idea to have at least one episode focused on Japan, a country I love. I had the incredible pleasure of living in Japan for nearly three years. It was a place of endless fascination for me. It was also a place where I could learn more deeply about psychology itself because it was so culturally different from my home in the United States. It allowed me to question phenomena I took for granted and doing so, it gave me greater insight into this experience of being human. One of my great teachers, through his writing at least, was my guest on this episode, Robert Whiting. Robert, who is also called Bob, has written several books on Japanese baseball that describe Japanese culture by how the game is approached in Japan. His books have been read regularly in academic institutions, governmental institutions, and at least two sitting U.S. presidents have read his books to better understand their important ally. The San Francisco Chronicle described one of these books as not only one of the best baseball books ever, but one of the best written sports books ever. I agree. And while I have read many books about Japan, his most recent Tokyo Junkie is one of the best books on Japan I have ever read. It chronicles his fascinating 60-year relationship with the city of Tokyo as it grew from a post-war city all the way to an economic superpower. He also shares stories about his relationships with famous wrestlers, baseball players, politicians, and even members of Tokyo's crime syndicate. So listen in as Bob and I talk about living in Japan as an expat in Tokyo, as well as how one can understand Japan far better by understanding how it approaches baseball. Robert Whiting, who I'll be calling Bob, welcome to Super Psyched. Thank you very much. So, Bob, you know, I've been a fan of yours since I was a college student. I was a student in Kansai Gaidai University in Osaka. And on the way over, I was reading your book, The Chrysanthemum and the Bat, as a great way to learn more about Japanese culture. I studied the Japanese language for some time. I found it totally eye-opening. What are some of the characteristics that you've come to love about Japan based on kind of the interpersonal and perhaps the psychological aspects of the Japanese people that you've come to really value? The honesty, the politeness, you know, you ask for directions and the odds are somebody will take you where you want to go. It's kind of general courtesy in society. And Tokyo, it's just follow me. Also there, every year, Japanese return like 30 or 40 million dollars worth of lost cash. We just pick it up and take it to the police. You know, there's a law that's called the lost goods law. You're required to do that. But if nobody sees you, then who's going to know the difference? But they'll do it anyway. I left my wallet on the Ecosco line one time and it came back to me in the mail. With 100,000 yen, I had it and the money was still there. And there was a little note that said, please be careful of your wallet. 
just just honesty. I forget how many hundreds of millions of dollars were returned after the Fukushima earthquake tsunami. Lost cash. You know, they teach you in school. They well, if you pick up a ten thousand yen note, you've got to find the owner, take it to the police box because what if the person who dropped this money had a sick cat and he was taking it to the veterinarian, but he couldn't pay the fee, didn't pay the veterinarian, so the cat died. That's your responsibility. This cat is dead because of you. Yeah. So they're educated to respect other people. You know, I lost my wallet in Amagasaki Station and it came back to me with all the probably 30,000 yen intact and just the kindness, the empathy that you're describing around what transpired during the earthquake or just in general that people have the sense of duty and this kind of interpersonal connectedness to the people that are invisible to one another and even their cat that you're even describing, this imaginal cat who could be suffering if we don't behave in a manner that is for the greater good. And you yourself mentioned that one of the ways that Japan has impacted you is that you've become a kinder person over the years. I was wondering if you could elaborate on that idea. How have you become kinder? If people ask me for help, I always give it. Even somebody writes to me out of the blue, and this has happened to me quite a bit recently. They, they say, I've just written a book. Would you mind reading it? <laughs> tell me where could you give me a blurb and it's a draft of a book you know it's not published yet they haven't found a publisher but i find myself doing it. i think about what it was like when i was starting out but i just you know i, I this whole idea of treating people the way you'd want to be treated is a japanese trait more than it is in the state so that's one thing i do i lived in new york for several years and i found my personality changing I became more aggressive. I'd snap at people. You know, I'd just be as nasty as the next guy. Because that's the way people treat you in New York. Yeah. I wanted to mention this earlier. There's something called the Japanese National Character Institute run by the government. The Nihon Kokumin Kenki Joe, I think is the Japanese title. And uh, they do these periodic surveys and they ask people, what's your favorite food? What's your favorite sport? Usually baseball is on top. And uh, what's most important to you in life? And they have a list of words like individualism, harmony, empathy. And these harmony, wa, empathy, omoyari, dorioku, effort are always at the top in the high 90s, 90% in these surveys. At the bottom is kojin shugi, which is pleasant. Mm. Yeah. In the States and in Europe, it's just the opposite. Individual rights is way up there at the top, you know, maybe family. But individualism is a really big thing to Americans and Europeans, not for Japanese. That's part of the feudal culture, Confucianism, the 300-year history of feudalism. And also some people say it's the rice planting culture, too, that does that, where group cooperation is really important. They have this phrase, Mura Hachibu, you'll be expelled from the village. If you don't do your job during rice planting season, you know, they'll kick you out. So what are some common misconceptions about Japanese culture held by foreigners? And what are some things that you wish people could understand more fully about the way Japanese think and comport themselves? Well, just because individualism ranks low on their scale of values, it doesn't mean that 
Japanese people aren't individualistic and side, and that one person is as different from the next guy as in the United States or Europe. They're just very quiet about it. The Japanese have one of the highest literacy rates in the world. And in school, you know, they're forced to study the hard sciences. So I would say that Japanese are more educated than, you know, the literacy rate in Japan is really high, 98, 99%. So what you're describing is, in spite of the fact that it's a collectivistic culture where the group counts more than the individual on average, that they have private lives. They are individuals just like anyone else, but they keep it private. You know, the one thing about Americans is they love to argue and they love to attempt to win every argument. Mm -hmm. They're like the French. I lived in Paris for a while and the French are like that too. They just love to debate, not Japanese. It's very hard to draw them into a discussion because they think it's bad matters, you know, to force their opinions on other people. Yeah. I mean, that's a gross generalization, but it's generally true. And uh, jumping ahead here, but most people don't know this around the world, but I think right now Tokyo is the greatest city in the world. And there are several metrics that put them at the number one ranking. For example, this literacy rate, you know, I've seen, you know, studies about literacy rates in different countries and different cities. And you know, Tokyo is right up there at the top. It has the li- highest life expectancy of any major city in the world. It has the highest GDP of any major city in the world. It has the highest population of any city in the world. It has more Michelin-starred restaurants than any city in the world. It has twice as many three-star restaurants as uh, Paris does. Michelin three-star restaurants as Paris does. It has more Fortune 500 global headquarters than any other city in the world. It has uh, the uh, most efficient, the cleanest, and the safest, most extensive subway and train system in the world. It's the safest city in the world, the most fashion-conscious city in the world. That's the politest people in the world. I mean, that's a subjective thing, but I think... TripAdvisor would corroborate a lot of what you're saying based on the polls that have been taken. I think you mentioned that it was considered one of the world's most beloved cities, period. Yeah, two years ago, it was number one on the TripAdvisor, the city's most favorite cities. It ranked ahead in all of these uh, different categories. And last year, in November, the Global Finance did a survey and, and ranked Tokyo as the most livable city in the world, even with COVID. As you're talking, I mean, I left Japan decades ago, but Japan never left me. And that feeling that you were describing of flying into, was it Narita that you fly into or Haneda? Uh, both, either one. E- either one. As in just being like, oh, I'm coming back. I dream about it nearly weekly. It really had that big of an impact on me uh, in my psyche. And one of the things that I hear as you were describing just the monumental nature of this incredible city, I find myself remembering a particular phenomenon. And I'm wondering if you might be able to add some insight to it. And that is it's crowded. And yet people don't bump into each other. People somehow it's almost like there is this sixth sense that keeps people from bumping into each other in spite of how busy a crosswalk might be in every direction imaginable. I think your listeners should Google Shibuya Crossing. Sometime. Totally. And watch that. There's like 10 different lanes that meet each other in front of the Shibuya station. 
And when this, the signal changes, the cars have to stop and the pedestrians cross from all these different angles. And these days, everybody is crossing. They've got their head buried in an iPhone. <laughs> They're smart, some kind of smartphone. And somehow they never touch. It's amazing. There should be a museum for great wonders of the world. And that would be one of them. I could not agree more. Let's pivot to Japanese baseball. Bob, it appears to me that when a product or a technology comes to Japan, Japan finds a way to make that product its own and put a Japanese flavor onto it. Certainly that was true with baseball. You wrote two great books, actually three, if you include the Warren Cromartie book, which I absolutely adored while I was reading it in Japan. But the Chrysanthemum and the Bat, as well as You've Got to Have Wa. Both of these books have been read by Westerners in academic institutions, as well as at least two sitting U.S. presidents wanting to understand more about Japanese culture. So, Bob, what are some takeaways that Westerners have found most useful in understanding Japanese culture and psychology based upon how the Japanese approach baseball? You can really see a Japanese approach to life, their attitude, their values set through baseball. When baseball was introduced in the late 19th century, this one school, the first higher school of Tokyo, which is a prep school for Imperial University, which was the forerunner of Tokyo University, where all the movies and shakers went, turned baseball into a martial art. The majority of the students in that school, it's a prep school for students aged 18 to 22, came from samurai families. And they grafted the philosophy of the martial arts onto baseball. The whole idea of endless training, development of spirit, self-sacrifice, obedience, and uh, I'm forgetting something here. Duty. Um, you know, group self, group cooperation. Mm-hmm. So they, they turned their approach to baseball into something completely different from in the United States, where it was a... A sport that you played in spring and fall, but in Japan, if you played it, you had to be a member of the baseball team 365 days a year. You got maybe one day off at New Year's to visit your family, but you practiced several hours a day, did a thousand swings at night in the team dormitory, spent summer and winter breaks in these special training camps. And uh, this team defeated a team of Americans from the Oklahoma Athletic and Country Club in the first formal game ever played between Japanese and Americans. They won several others. And uh, that could have set the tone. And all of the uh, Western sports, in fact, there were no real sports in Japan before these uh, Western sports were introduced. They were mostly martial arts, kendo, uh, jujitsu, learned to ride a horse attack was to go into battle or you learn to swim, to swim the boat, to attack the castle, that sort of thing. But there were no sports for relaxation and there were no group sports, except for this Kemati, which is an esoteric uh, kind of kickball thing with no scoring in it. The Royals played. So that philosophy became all other sports, soccer, rugby, cricket, the Japanese adopted they grafted this philosophy onto it. And you can see this philosophy manifested in other areas of Japanese life, like the school system, where they have expressions like uh, study until your eyes bleed. Mm. Baseball, that's a scholastic equivalent of this drill the Japanese developed in baseball, the thousand fungal drill, where you feel ground balls for three hours until you drop. 
And one of the, the famous managers said, there's only one a player is lying on his back and foam coming out of his mouth. <laughs> he has done his best. And he said a manager has to love his players as deeply as he can, but he has to, inside, but he has to treat them as cruelly as possible outside. And so you see this in uh, this school system with, you know, it's almost like uh, all your waking hours are devoted to study. You have to go to these special juku. In schools, the students, there are no janitors. Because the students do all the cleaning as part of their education. In uh, Japanese corporations, you have contract. I've worked in a Japanese company, so I attest to this. The contract says employees work days from 9 o'clock to 5 o'clock, but they never go home at 5 o'clock. They stay till 8, 9, 10. I work on weekends. Uh, there's this whole you know, ritual of... Uh, who gets to enter the elevator first, you know, depending on what your rank in the company is. There are meetings every day. I've worked in American companies and uh, meetings are held when they're necessary. That's mm-hmm. all. But in Japan, it's a kind of a ritual that provoked this feeling of har- wall harmony or togetherness. On a major league baseball team, like the New York Yankees or the San Francisco Giants will hold a, a team meeting maybe once or twice a year and start the playoffs or, you know, a, some special event. In Japan, they have team meetings every day, every day before the game. So they go over the strategy. And, you know, the attitude is in, America, in America is that you're a professional and you should know how to do your job. And if you don't do it well, then they'll get somebody else. In Japan, the attitude is you have to be told what to do. Players, they need guidance of the coaches. So they have meetings before each game, and then they have meetings after the game, which are called Hansekai, or self-reflection conferences. And these meetings, there's no praise handed out, but always criticism. The players who screwed up are fined, and they're called out the next morning for special practice. And you see, you see this in the government ministries and the bureaucracy, where these, you go to Kasumi Gaseki, which is where all the government offices are located at. 9, 10, 11 o'clock at night, the lights are on everywhere. People are working. And the same thing in, in modern Uchi. You know, I'm a member of the press club, and the FC Foreign Correspondents Club of Japan. That's it's located right in the heart of modern Uchi. It's, you know, 9, 10 people are still working. Mm-hmm. But in Japan, it's, there's this whole philosophy. I'm not saying that it's based, that the martial arts has influenced all of this. I'm saying that the martial arts is part of this larger idea in life where dedication to whatever you're doing is the most important complete dedication is, is really necessary it's valued much higher than it is in generally speaking than it is in europe or in the states and this uh whole idea of you're you're part of a group you're contributing something for the benefit of the group is paramount where in the states and Europe too. What you're doing is you're doing to benefit yourself. Yeah. So there's so much of a group orientation in terms of where the mindset of the players tends to go. Uh, let's talk a little bit about group dynamics. One of the things that I always found so interesting is that if there's a guy on first base, you're going. The next thing that happens is probably going to be a bunt. Right. Is that still the way the game is practiced? Yes. Yes, they're in the pros. They sacrifice about three or four times as much as they do in America. And can you just kind of elaborate on the philosophy behind that? Why is that the case? Well, the way it's been explained to me by people within baseball teams, Japanese and Americans, both within baseball teams in Japan, is that 
But there's a runner on first and you swing away and you strike out. It's embarrassing. But if you sacrifice and make an out and the runner advances, then you've helped the team. You've made an out, but you still, you've helped the team. So your standing is maintained within the team. It's virtuous. Yeah, the Americans would say, if you sacrifice well with a runner on first and nobody out, you're wasting an out. And uh, I've seen different studies. Some support the Japanese way, others support the American way. The Americans, his ego is involved. You know, there's some guys that just won't sacrifice bump. They just say, this is embarrassing to make me do this and they refuse to do it. That's why I saw Glavar Torres sacrifice bunted yesterday against the Phillies in Yankee Stadium in the the 10th inning, and they won the game because of that. I didn't think that was possible on the New York Yankees, but they did it. I guess they've been playing so bad, they have to do something to change their strategy. But you just very seldom see that in the United States. And then I find myself thinking about the practicing and practicing so hard. I remember reading Sadaharu O's biography and being just blown away by the idea that he would practice swinging with a sword, cutting paper, which I thought was awesome. Can you describe that practice and how it may have contributed to his 868 home runs, which I still cannot wrap my head around? His coach on the Giants was a baseball man, but he was also an Aikido expert. I had known O for a long time, but anyway, he was hired by the Giants and he used Again, applied the martial arts uh, philosophy of practice. You know, when you swing a sword, you have an A4 size paper, 8 by 11 suspended mm-hmm. ceiling by a string. When you swing at it with a sword, the, the force of the air will blow the paper out of the way. You won't be able to cut it. And in order to slice this piece of paper in half, you have to break your wrist at just the right time. And by the process of doing this, it gave O really strong wrists. So that was an interesting uh, phenomenon, I thought. And the the other thing about him was he he had this uh, one-legged raise his leg. You know, you see in baseball, a lot of people raise their legs when they're swinging at it. It helps the rhythm. But his was completely different. He had a hitch in his swing. And so this Aikido teacher said the way to eliminate that was to revamp his swing completely and so he taught him to just stand there on one leg and O could stand in the batter's box on one leg he'd raise his knee he'd just stand there like he looked like some flamingo from Lake Nakudu in uh, in Kenya totally and he could do that you know he could stand there for a minute two minutes and, and not lose his balance and somehow that eliminated this hitch that he had and he also developed, in the process of doing that, he developed these intensely strong legs, his calves, you know, were like the size of watermelons. So he wasn't a particularly muscular guy, but his wrists were powerful and his calves were something else off the charts. Oh, I love, loved reading that book. And I love Sadaharu. Did you ever get to meet him? Yeah, I went to his house once. Oh, that's awesome. He had a, he says, I want you to sit in my favorite chair. And it was this huge oh. chair shaped like an infielder's glove. You know, what's funny, Bob, is I took great, uh, I can't even describe to you how seriously I took the responsibility of finding the sofa in which the people who come to see me for psychotherapy sit because I wanted to be very comfortable. And after trying out 120 different sofas, I found the one and I call it God's baseball mitt. 
because it looks like a baseball mitt and it's the most comfortable chair you've ever seen. So when you described Sadaharu, oh, I just felt, you know, wow, somehow very validated, like, oh, sweet. You know, I love this guy. And he chose a similar style in the last 25 years, starting with particularly with Hideo Nomo, the Japanese elite stars have been just tearing it up in the United States, obviously causing immense amounts of very understandable pride amongst the Japanese. And I'm wondering, how has this new exchange, I mean, historically, we've sent many uh, U.S. ball players to Japan, but now many Japanese stars, particularly uh, Shohei Otani, uh, who can throw a uh, hundred mile an hour fastball and then deliver a home run, a 500 foot home run the next day, which I still don't understand. But, uh, and of course, Ichiro, I mean, I, I'm just so in love with these Japanese ball players. How has it changed perhaps Japan's perception of itself from what you can tell and perhaps its perception of the outside world? It's given them uh, a lot of confidence that they didn't have before. You know, there's this writer, Midori Masajima, who writes about this phenomenon quite a bit. And she said that before Nomo and Ichiro went to the States and succeeded, you know, the Japanese never really felt like uh, members of the world was the term that she used. It's we've never been card-carrying members of the global community, not even in the Meiji era or during the post-war era. Japanese have had this image of being people who could make products. Nomo and Ichiro and Hideki Matsuri changed all that now, especially Otani. So Nomo and Ichiro were the first Japanese people to become cultural icons in the United States. There was nobody. Nobody could name the Japanese prime minister. You know, Kurosawa was a well-known filmmaker, but he was like an art house. Figure. Oh, definitely. And know his name. But after Nomo, you know, everybody in the United States, if you name, name one Japanese who you know, it was everybody would say Nomo. And it's really mm. expanded the Western view of the Japanese. And also this exchange, because Nomo and Ishiro and the rest, every game they play is televised nationwide on TV. And there are all of these uh, people stop and watch these jumbotrons up front of the station and then their games are telecast. Lots of documentaries, little news features. People got a better sense of what America was like. Because before then, you would have these aging major leaguers who would go to Japan like Reggie Smith, the, the Boston Red Sox Dodgers star, who said, I'm not doing no thousand bungle knot. He says, that's not baseball. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to do these drills. I know how to play baseball. I'm a major leaguer. And there was this idea that Americans were selfish, that they were lazy. They didn't want to do the training the Japanese did, so they made these excuses, like, I'm a major leaguer. I don't do that sort of thing. I'm too good for that. But by having these Japanese go and play full seasons in America and covered by the media, they began to see that there's a different way of doing things. Like it wasn't necessary to train for eight hours a day in spring training and start as early as the Japanese did. They started a full month before the Americans. And uh, they began to see that there's a different way of doing things. The pitchers were you know, throwing 100 uh, pitches in practice every day in the bullpen. And now they don't do that anymore. You know, they'll pitch their big starters, pitch once a week, and that's it. Maybe one, one you know, bullpen session in between. 
but the Japanese have become more sophisticated. They're more sophisticated about weight training. Now, they used to think uh, that lifting weights was bad for you. But, you know, these resistance training programs can benefit you a lot. They, they thought that bulking up as a, a ball player would affect your play adversely. And also the uh, Japanese like to do a lot of marathon running, you know, running from the spring camp training site back 10 miles back to the hotel. They thought that was good. And, uh, you know, they learned about the fast twitch and slow twitch muscle groups and that. You know, maybe uh, running 10 miles every day is good if you're a marathoner, but if you're a baseball player, when you have quick movements, you know, that it's sort of counterproductive. Another thing I noticed is, uh, I include this in these speeches that I give. In 1977, when Sarah Hara broke Hank Aaron's record, it was five feet, nine inches tall and weighed 175 pounds. Oh, wow. In 1995, when Noma went to the States, Play for the Dodgers. He was six foot two and weighed 190 pounds. And now Otani is like six foot four, six foot five. He weighs 220 pounds, and he looks like an NFL linebacker or something. Oh, he's he's, a huge change. And he spent his last winter in this training complex in Seattle, building up the lower half of his body. So he put on about 20, 25 pounds, and it was a systematic, you know, weight training program. I think they become a little more sophisticated about the, the way they approach baseball. Yeah, Bob, as I hear you saying this, it, there's a more of an openness to download from the outside ideas as a result of having been seen. There seems to be such a primal need for humans to feel seen and to have a sense as this journalist so wrote in such an, an articulate manner that we were faceless. And now we have a face, we are seen, and now there's room for us to take in something from the outside in this way. I'm just blown away by that. I want to kind of close with this because most people who are listening probably have never been to a Japanese baseball game in Japan, and there is nothing in the world that could prepare a person for the awesomeness of going to a well-coordinated cheering audience of a Japanese baseball game. I used to go to Koshien. Even though I'm a Giants fan in the United States, I'm definitely a Tigers fan in Japan. Uh, it was all Hanshin Tigers all day for me. So uh, I'm just wondering if you could describe <laughs> the spectacle that is a Japanese baseball game. Well, this is a phenomenon that goes back to the turn of the 19th century into the 20th century. Started in universities and high schools. And there are these organized cheering groups. You know, mm. just cheer nonstop you know, throughout the game when the home team is at bat, that is. And then uh, when the home team is on defense, then the visiting team has its own cheering section on the other side, on the left field side. And they go nonstop, you know, when your team is at bat. And uh, these are very organized groups. I've sat in the Hanching Tigers Owen Dunn. <laughs> I'm laughing because I as I know what it feels like in there. It's so happy and so exciting. Uh, somebody gave me a can of Hanching Tiger beer. <laughs> you know, you're seated according to your talents. Totally. You get there are screaming tests, you know, that they're conducted before you go in, before you're allowed in as a member of the Owen Dunn. So they know where to uh, put you. It's quite elaborate. I mean, I'm really impressed with, you know, some of the routines they do. They're fairly complicated. It takes a lot of practice. You know, like a performance of the Rockettes or Rock Fellers. Totally. 
Radio City Music Hall. Again, this is Japanese versus American differences in cultural habits. In Japan, for a long time, the first time I went to a game was in 1963 at the old Crockwood Stadium, the Giants and the Dragons. And what got me was that nobody stood up and yelled. You know, in the States, it's a free-for-all. Everybody has their own shtick, and you stand up and scream, kill the umpire, you know, <laughs> go home, you bum, blah, blah, blah. It's a Mr. American, you know, stands up and, and yells something. Everybody looks at it. <laughs> No, don't be so crude. What's wrong with you? <laughs> but if you want to cheer, then you have to go out and sit in the outfield with the cheering group. Then it's okay. You can scream your head off, you know, in unison with everybody else. It's like it's symbolic of Japanese society. Bob, I take so much delight in hearing your description of a Japanese baseball game. I miss that terribly. Thank you so much for sharing your time with my listeners and your cultivated wisdom about Japan. And I, I just can't thank you enough. Adam, that was my pleasure. This is Dr. Adam Dorsey thanking you for listening to Super Psyched. If you know anyone who might like it or who might benefit from listening, share it. And if you like the episode, please hit subscribe.